Thank you for joining us for this Prima podcast. My name is Taekwon Gilbert. I am the education coordinator at Prima and the moderator for today's podcast. October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month was designed to increase awareness regarding the significance of cybersecurity, as well as provide the necessary resources to ensure people are safe and secure online. To commemorate the 16th anniversary of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Prima created a National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Each week during the month of October, Prima will feature podcasts that share important information about cybersecurity. Today's podcast speaker, Kelly Till, will discuss how to address phishing threats. She is the lead for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Phishing Campaign Assessment at the United States Department of Homeland Security. Please enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Kelly. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So first off, um, what's your background? What led you to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and your path to becoming a phishing expert? Oh, it's actually, uh, I think it's pretty interesting because I didn't really come from a technical background. I actually started off my educational pursuits looking at economics. I was really fascinated by how money works and how it influences people and drives people to do things. And that's what actually led me into the cybersecurity world. It was the asking the question, what is cybercrime? Why are people motivated to do it? And the more I dug into it, the more I was fascinated. I pursued a degree in international affairs after my economics degree because I thought, well, you know, cyberspace knows no boundaries. You have criminal actors all over the world. Let's let's see if there's something here to explore. And there was a lot of great research that I did that when I got out of college and I thought, okay, where where am I going to go next? It really turned to uh, an opportunity to to do more research in cybersecurity. So I found a position with Homeland Security that gave me the opportunity to look at how agencies deal with their own policies and procedures surrounding cyber. And it reminds me a lot of my education in international affairs and how how do you set these new standards and these behaviors in this man-made realm? Like we invented the internet, we invented cyberspace, and there's a whole new set of behaviors that have to go with it. And after a few years of doing some of this like compliance and auditing to make sure people are following best practices, the opportunity came around that I could lead the phishing program because it really has a lot to do with these same behaviors. You have people who write policies and people who try and implement them, but then you have the end user who is either not implementing them or following them or just is unaware of them and they still engage in these bad or negative behaviors that put them and the company at risk. And so it's it's asking these these questions of why are we still doing this? And really to be how this path, you say, of becoming a fishing expert was just driven by curiosity and asking questions and saying, you know, what are we doing and how can we make ourselves better? So I really say for anybody who wants to get into the, the cybersecurity field, just just have this inquisitive nature. It's gotten me this far. <laughs> but also be willing to just ask unusual questions and put in that effort to see what answers may come of it. And, I, and I'm really loving this work that I'm doing. Okay, Kelly, to level set for our audience, what exactly is phishing? At its simplest, it's a scam. You think of the the classic 
fisherman who uses a worm to hide a hook that they want to catch a fish with. Well, in the security world, fishing, and that's fishing with a pH, is where an attacker wants to bait a victim into divulging sensitive information without the victim knowing they're being scammed. Just like the fish doesn't know there's a hook, all they see is the worm, the victim doesn't know that there is something evil or mean behind this, this message that they're getting. Because if the attacker just says, give me your credit card information, most people are going to say, no, I don't know who you are. I don't trust you. I have no reason to give you that information. But when the attacker uses a phishing scam, they'll send out maybe a formal looking email, say something like, hi, Kelly, your account with XYZ Bank is frozen because of suspicious activity. And we need to log, we need you to log in using the secure link to reactivate it. And many people will take that. Like they, they don't question it. They're, they're concerned. They want to get access back to their account quickly. So this formal-looking email, this emergency message overrides most common sense, and they click on the link before thinking. And this is why phishing is so successful, because it's, it's not technical. It's a form of social engineering where the attackers play on human emotions, like fear or curiosity or greed or this innate desire to be helpful. And it's also successful because it takes place online where you can't see the other person or at least on in online communications where you can't read their body language or make eye contact with them to confirm their actual identity or have any other way to detect traditional signs of untrustworthiness. And I always think of this, the comic uh, from the New Yorker in the 1990s where it says, on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. Knowing exactly who is sending you that message can still be a challenge. And that's why phishing is such a successful and profitable type of scam, even today. When I think of phishing, I think of the old email chain letters and the Nigerian print scams from years ago. Is that what phishing still looks like? And how is it being used today? Uh, yes. So I remember those old email chain letters, too. Some family member forwards it, says you need to submit this to another 10 people and more bad luck is going to happen kind of like a precursor to phishing. It's more just, that's more just annoying. But the Nigerian print scam, yes, that's where someone and a lot of these, not all of them, but a lot of them do originate out of Nigeria saying, hey, I have um, an inheritance and I want to benefit some charity, but uh, I need your help. Um, it's like, we need, I, we need help transferring this money and it's a, a fee for service. And if you just give me $1,500 to help me transfer this million dollars, I'll give you a quarter of it. That's your classic Nigerian print scam, which we've seen in the early 2000s and we're still seeing it today because wherever online communications take place, you're going to see phishing and, and phishing has gotten more sophisticated over the years, but it still follows a, a pretty similar format. You will see people attempting to get you to click on links or share information like in gaming chat rooms or on private messages on LinkedIn or Facebook or WhatsApp or many social media direct messaging and email. And email is the most common form because one, for the attacker, it's so easily accessible. And two, your potential pool of victims is huge since most people have an email account and modern companies rely on email to conduct many of their business transactions. So there's this huge financial incentive for criminals to exploit that medium. So while I mentioned the Nigerian print scam, it's still out there. Um, but what's really popular right now, really profitable, is this phishing scam targeting businesses called Business Email Compromise, or BEC. 
And this is where an attacker first lures someone into lures someone within a company into revealing just enough information to where the attacker can get access to a legitimate email account. Then with that real email account, the attacker starts sending more emails, pretending to be someone in that company who's maybe a senior um, official or someone who has a lot of clout, who, who wouldn't be challenged for maybe making a request. And so the scam usually takes place over several email exchanges, but generally follow the sequence of first asking the victim if they're able to purchase gift cards or change payroll information or make a wire transfer. And then they make the note that um, this request is urgent and must be done as soon as possible. And if that person were to not comply right away, maybe they lose their job or face retribution. And this type of scam is also used to uh, fleece companies by using the, the same compromised email, not to send internally, but to send externally to other companies where they send fake invoices. And according to the FBI, this scam has cost companies around the world over $26 billion, and that's billion with a B, since it came on the scene in mass usage in 2013. While that is really financially motivated one, a large a subset or a smaller portion of phishing scams are, are done not with a direct financial incentive. Like I, the, so a direct financial incentive would be I'm just trying to get your credit card information and I want to join your bank account. But there are also phishing is used to gain initial network access to then get intellectual property or you want to get more records with social security numbers or financial information. All of this stuff stored in databases. So you attack the company that holds the database. And then you get all of that information within the database and then you sell it on the black market. Or maybe you want to get someone else's access to someone else's servers to run your own website or to mine cryptocurrency. These are all heavy computing resources required to do it, but you don't have to pay for any of them if you just use someone else's. So we always start with, I say we, because my group supports our penetration testers and they go in and test networks and see how porous they are, how hard it is to get into them. Well, we always start with phishing because it's effective. And only when it doesn't work do we move to other forms of hacking that don't involve direct human contact. We actually get network access 90% of the time with a phishing email. And it's, it's just so good. We, we don't need to start with anything else most of the time. So this sounds like businesses are the main target for phishing. Am I at the individual level at risk for phishing? And what would that look like? You know, that's a great question. Uh, yes, it, it does seem like businesses are the main targets for phishing because they have these databases or they have lots of money. But really, the individual is the one who is targeted. So you're that individual in a company, but you also have a lot of information that the attackers may want at the personal level, like that social security number or your bank account, because phishing is a game of numbers. The more people you target, then the more people that are likely to uh, to, to click or um, take the bait. So knowing what your personal risk level is requires looking at the components of that risk. So at a high level, that would be the threat of phishing, your vulnerability to the phishing, and then the impacts of being phished. And so if we start with the threat of phishing, we really know like throughout humankind, society has like grown and evolved because we have this willingness to trust one another and to help other people we don't know. That's how communities, that's how societies evolve. And these are good behaviors and that 
you get rewarded when you trust someone and help someone with friends and a sense of community and, and group security and cohesion. But there there have been and will always be people who will want to, to use these predictable human emotions for their own exploit and gain. So some level of selfishness is also a predictable human feeling. So I think that the threat of fishing is always going to be along. That's the threat. And because we're all humans and we have these ooey-gooey emotions, whether we admit to it or not, I'd say we're all vulnerable at some level to being fished. I'd like to point out that even the most cybersecurity-aware people are still vulnerable or susceptible to fishing because the attacker has time to get information. And if they know enough about you and your interests and the things that are relevant to your life or work, they can craft a message that looks totally authentic and enticing for even the most savvy of us to click on. Like, I think I have a pretty good fish detector, but I almost fell for a fishing test in my office uh, when I got this email that said my leave request had been, not been denied. And so this was last winter when we were all planning vacations and I wanted to go on vacation with my family. And when I got this email that said my leave was denied, I felt that immediate flare-up of heat, uh, of anger. I was upset. I was irritated. I was confused since I had gotten it verbally approved. And so that was the button. My button was being, <laughs> of spending time with my family was being denied. So I almost clicked on that link to, quote, unquote, log into my time at attendance site to confirm. But my senses kicked in. And I started asking questions. Had I received a notice like this before? No. Is this how I get updates from the system normally? No. Does sending an email ad does the, the email address um, come from our internal messaging site? No. Okay. So this has to be a fish. So I, I clicked on our report fishing button and I got this little congratulatory, you did it, message. Um, but it was really, really close because from all of the other phishing tests that they send out that I could spot right away. This one hit my emotional button, and um, I was very, very close to being fooled. Uh, but anyhow, um, outside of emotions, another part of the vulnerability component is knowing your exposure level, like specifically your, your use of digital services that makes you a potential target. I've already said most phishing is done en masse. You have tens to hundreds of thousands of emails being sent um, for any given scam at any given time um, to anybody with an email. So. Um, these scams are done by looking like the email is coming from a large-scale organization or a widely used media site or online storage site or a free email service, something that has those hundreds of thousands of millions of people signed up for them. So this email may say, like, you need to reset your password or that someone has requested to tag you in a photo or that your storage is running out. So um, many of the some or many of the people who are targeted in these, uh, in these scams may actually use one of those sites. So they might click on the link. So if this were you and you were a subscriber of one of these sites and you got this email and you click, you might get some bad software downloaded onto your computer and that uh, bad software then uses your actual email to start emailing all of your contacts, maybe like a malicious calendar invite or friend request or some other social email. And because these emails are coming from you, your friends are now more likely to trust whatever you send them and the scam spreads and spreads and spreads. And a, a good thing is that email filters and a lot of these large email services are super good at spotting these mass type of phishing scams. So even before you or a friend gets compromised, most of them are filtered out, but there still is that chance of something making it through 
And so that's how that scam works. You just, the scammers send it to so many people. And even if a very small percentage click, that's still a lot. And so the last part of understanding your vulnerability to phishing is knowing how attractive of a target you are. So you have those mass phishing scams. Well, there are attackers who take the time to craft more specific emails to a very certain audience using information they've either found online or maybe they're already sitting on someone's email and they, they can see the conversations or maybe they have this information from a compromised database. And I, as a great example, I have a friend who was closing on a house recently and it was, let's say, like the Friday night of the, the week before she was supposed to close. She was a first-time house buyer, and she needed to get ready to pay her deposit. And she gets this email, 10 o'clock at night, from her lender saying, hey, the banking information has changed. In order to close, you need to wire your down payment to this new bank and forget that old bank. And if you don't do it by midnight tonight, you're not going to get your house. And so as a first-time home buyer, um, she wasn't entirely sure if this was normal or not normal, but she was concerned about losing her house. But there was just something about that email that seemed unusual. She was in a state on the East Coast, and this new bank was in a state uh, on the West Coast. And that was quite unusual, and they hadn't talked about this ahead of time. So she calls her lender. He doesn't pick up. Um, she emails him back. They continue to have this conversation of, you know, I need to, why do I need to do this? Um, I don't understand. The lender says, you got to do it. You're going to lose the house. Wire the money now. Don't question me. And so at 10, 10 o'clock at night, she, she calls me and says, I don't know what to do. This looks wrong, but I don't want to lose my house. And the advice that I gave her was, if it seems suspicious, just pump the brakes. There is no rush. Like most of these timelines when you're closing on a house are pretty flexible. So until you get like verbal confirmation from that lender, don't do anything. Well, as it turns out, that was a scammer. That person had somehow gotten into the bank's email system and was watching these conversations, waiting for someone to get ready to be closing their house and getting ready to the point of money transferring. And then they swooped in and took over the conversation. Her actual lender had had a family emergency and was not reachable by anybody. And But because she was sufficiently suspicious, uh, <laughs> she did not take the bait of potentially losing out on her house. She contacted the company on Monday, um, got the verbal confirmation, opened up an investigation. You know, she was able to kind of finally close on her house and all of that. But some people just aren't as lucky. They, they, they take the bait, they feel the panic, and they do whatever it is the quote-unquote lender is saying to do without getting that second or third form of confirmation. And this is, so this is where the attacker has time and they have the patience. So knowing how attractive you are as a target, she was attractive because she was a first-time home buyer and at that point of getting ready to transfer that money. So being aware of where you may be targeted and knowing the ways in which you could be targeted is, is all about how you reduce your risk. So you've covered threat and vulnerability. What about impact? Uh-huh. Yes. So you're caught on to that. I did just say this is all about how you reduce your risk, but I love leaving impact for last because it's here where we really can act to lower our risk of fishing. 
we can't do much about the threat of phishing in the immediate sense as an individual. We all have some emotional button. I explained mine was losing out on time with family. And I admit to that, but some people may not admit that they have an emotional button. And we can only control our exposure to a point because of the, the this modern need and prevalence of digital communications. And the attractiveness of a target is in the eye of the fisher. So you can make yourself less attractive, but someone may always find you as an attractive target. But the personal impact of phishing can be controlled through two primary means. One is behavioral and one is technical. So on the behavioral side, it's just simple, smart behaviors with a healthy dose of suspicion. And those will save you a lot of grief. So you can't help being emotionally vulnerable or being an attractive target or that the phishing threat is out there. But if you were to receive a phishing email, knowing what to look for and knowing those common tricks used to fool you will help minimize the impact of being phished. So these are, these are what I call red flags. Do you know who the sender is? Do you know what the, the, the email message is? Like, is there context? Does it relate to your life? Or is it just totally random and out of the blue? The link that's within that message body, if you hover over it, does it match the URL that pops up? Or is someone trying to put, hey, click here to go to ABC Bank. But if you hover over that link, it goes to XYZ. Dot com. Like, there's no connection between what's being displayed and the website it's trying to take you to. These are all very simple, but they're these, these basic, a basic understanding of the, of the tricks used to fool you in an email can save you a lot of time. The four, you know, the one to four seconds of pausing and thinking before clicking can really help you not become a victim of phishing. So that, that's one thing. And I, I have a friend, I asked her, have you ever been fished? And, and her, she has a very, straight um, <laughs> straight approach. She goes, if I don't know them, if I don't know the email sender, or if I don't know the phone number for a text message or the phone number for a phone call, I'm not picking up, I'm not answering, I'm not responding. Now, that may not work for everybody. Some of us may need to reply to people we don't know, but knowing um, the tricks of the trade on how people use these techniques in, in emails can help you work your day job or help you communicate in this online world, but also do it safely. Another thing, another behavior is just being aware of the information you post online. Like um, if you see a friend posting something about these 40 questions you never knew about me and you start reading through these questions and it's what's the name of the dog you had growing up? What's the name of the street you had growing up? Um, your childhood home? What's the make and model of the first car you drove? These all sound like fun things to know about you, but they also sound like those challenge response questions when you're trying to reset your password for an account. So knowing that this information you're sharing with friends may not stop with your friends and just pausing and asking yourself, okay, yes, this is a fun little quiz, but is it giving up too much information? And it's the same thing with um, sharing that you are on or about to go on a vacation. Uh, that type of information can be used to we're not even going to talk about, you know, the security of your home while you're away on vacation, but it could be put into an email saying, hey, this upcoming vacation you're going on, your plane tickets have been changed. You need to log into your account to, to, to uh, confirm the upgrade. That's the type of information that can be used to make an email seem relevant to you. And it's information you share openly, willingly. Another one is geotagging, like when you post a picture online, 
and it, it marks your location. It's the same thing. Like you just got to ask, am I sharing too much? And can this be used against me? And it's all about that attractiveness as a target. And you know, someone can see that as attractive, but at least you can control the amount of information you're putting out there. So those are those are really behaviors. And this next one is kind of a behavior, kind of a technical, but it's uh, repeating passwords across accounts. So let's say you get a phishing email and someone has gets you to successfully share your credentials. Okay, you've you realize you've been phished and you try and change your password for your social media account. But if you use that password again and again and again on a bunch of other sites, they now have the keys to the kingdom. Like they can get to your bank and to your um, your, your money sharing apps and to any of these other accounts that you have because you've used the same password. So if you have a unique account, you want a unique password. So to reduce the impact, that, that's, that's a huge way to reduce impact of phishing. Yes, they may compromise one account, but they can't replay it to all of your other accounts online or real world because you've, you've stopped reusing passwords. And so now we really get into technical control. So that's behavioral. Technical, uh, like the really good email filtering that large email services use, that, that's one part that helps reduce phishing and spam emails. There's another part of it where if you've already clicked, because we're talking about impact, two-factor or multi-factor authentication is an excellent way to reduce the impact of phishing. And what this is, is it uses something in addition to a password to log into your account, like an SMS code texted to you on your phone or a physical token or an authentication app. If your password is compromised, the attacker still cannot log into your account without having those other bits of information. So wherever possible, I implore you, enable multi-factor authentication to ensure that you are the only person that has access to your account. Then after multi-factor, I'd say being smart about the, the Wi-Fi that you connect to is also a good technical control. So if you find yourself at the airport or coffee shop or hotel or other places with free Wi-Fi, you just avoid using the free internet access. I mean, you can use it. Like you want to confirm with someone official at that location that you are connecting to the correct network and not some lookalike network. But if you are doing it unsecured, then don't do anything sensitive like banking or logging in to something that requires a password. And if your phone has the ability, using your personal hotspot, yes, it's your own data, but it is a safer alternative to free Wi-Fi. And then one more really good technical control for reducing the impact of phishing is keeping up to date with your antivirus and security updates. So you've clicked on the email or you've opened the attachment and something has downloaded onto your computer. Well, it's only going to work for the most part if, an, if your computer is not up to date. So these, these attachments or these malicious exploits work because your computer hasn't been patched or updated. And I'm not going to talk about a zero days or the things you really have, really can't protect against. But most of these phishing attacks use well-known, long, well-known, well-known exploits that your computer uh, manufacturer, your software provider, your app developer, they've already pushed these updates to you and they're just waiting for you to download them so that your, your, your phone or your device remains secure. So when your, when your phone or app gives you that pop-up that says it's time to update, Really, try not to delay on that. I mean, these are critical patch updates for the latest threat. And if possible, to save yourself some, some time, just set your updates to be automatic. And that's one less thing you have to worry about. 
So between these very simple technical controls and these behavioral, slight behavioral changes, you're going to go a really long way to reducing the impact of fishing and then your overall risk of fishing. We covered briefly in the beginning that you work for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency performing fishing assessments. Is CISA doing anything else to combat phishing, and are there any other resources for our audience to learn more? Yes, I'm really glad you asked about that. So CISA is in partnership with the National Cybersecurity Alliance, and we're helping host National Cybersecurity Awareness Month through a bunch of activities and events. Um, one of them like, being this wonderful opportunity to talk with you on this podcast. And I'm so happy to be able to share this information. I am really passionate about phishing and helping show people that even the average everyday person can protect themselves against what is a pretty big threat. So for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, our overall message is be cyber smart. You want to own IT, secure IT, and protect IT. And everybody has like this individual role you play online to be safe. And there are just very straightforward but proactive steps you can take to enhance cybersecurity at home and in the workplace. And so to find these resources, you can go to CISA.gov or you can go to DHS.gov forward slash NCSAM, so National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And there you're going to find like activities, other resources, these great videos. Going to CISA.gov and clicking on the Be Cyber Smart, there are these great 15-second videos that give you ideas on, well, you know, is it smart to connect to Wi-Fi? How about protecting my phone? What about this information I'm sharing? I love them. It's a really great way to start conversations and share this information because you really, you really have to have like a handful of advocates who are passionate about sharing information and knowing that, hey, by sharing this stuff about not putting out your credit card information, I may be protecting a loved one, a family member, a friend from becoming a victim, from losing their identity or their funds or um, losing out on the chance of getting a house because their, their credit score went in the tank. So it's this, you have this personal role and it helps with friends and family and making it a, a social role. So yeah, going to CISA.gov, going to DHS.gov forward slash NCSAM, you'll find a lot of great information there. And then other things are, and this is, this is outside of CISA, this is just ask, asking questions, starting conversations, listening to great podcasts like this one. These are all my, my personal thoughts about more resources. It's, we're really in a, in a in a place in a time where lots of attention is being played, being given to cybersecurity because we're all online. And uh, one great thing that you can do is just just do a digital refresh. Go to your social media sites and see. Look at the privacy settings. Update them. Make sure they're they're they are what you think they are. Take this opportunity to do an annual update of all of your passwords. Start using long, complicated passwords and know that you can use a password manager to record them all and you keep the password manager safe with two-factor authentication. There's, it's just, it's just layering and that's going to like, get you a long way in being cyber smart, cyber secure. And some more information like this is available online. I know I covered a lot in this talk, but you can find those laid out and in easily shareable formats too to give out to your friends and family. So I'm really glad you asked about that part because those online resources are really great. Thank you for tuning in to Prima's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Should you have any questions regarding this podcast or any podcast in this series, please email education at primacentral.org. 
To learn more about Prima's educational resources, please visit primacentral.org. Thanks again.